Well, it's good to see every one of you. We uh, are in a spirit in a series called Spirit, or on uh, as uh, many uh, Christians grew up hearing about the Holy Spirit. Um, so, whatever tradition you're from, if you're from the Christian tradition, you have heard um, the term the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, what we're talking about is how. Um, spirit or the way, and I'm using it in just that without the definite article um, on purpose because in the original languages, it's also the way it is, but it's not because it's supposed to be translated without the definitive article. It's just the way that languages work. But what's refreshing about not using that article is because when we talk about spirit, we want to reclaim some of the mystery around spirit. And what happens to churches, particularly like ours, that is charismatic. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I did the first part of this series, Spirit Old to New. And uh, I talked about from uh, the book of Acts all the way up to the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, Today, we're talking about from the Azusa Street Revival all the way till today. Um, And so... Um, the last week we talked a little bit about this, um, and how our tradition comes from our charismatic. We come from, uh, what happened during the sixties, seventies, and eighties in terms of the revive, the awakening, the, the spiritual awakening that was happening then the charismatic movement, but the charismatic movement starts and, and takes its, uh, lead from the Pentecostal movement that preceded it. And, uh, and so what happens when we have this sort of like, this is what the Holy Spirit is like, we create a nice little box in which God is supposed to behave uh, accordingly. We've got a well-behaved God. We've tamed the divine, haven't we? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we have to learn to do is to reclaim mystery. Um, and that's really difficult because, uh, you know, I, I'm a seminary grad, MDiv. I was taught systematic theology both in my, um, uh, in, my in, in Bible college and then in seminary. Um, and, um, you know, and I loved it. I loved systematic theology at the time. But something started to bother me during the time I was studying systematic theology, which was, boy, I feel like I've got this sort of box around God. Like it feels like I've, uh, you know, now I've got all the terms to define this, this divine being. Of course, all theologians and scholars would say, this is the best we can do. God is still beyond all this and is still mystery. They would acknowledge that. But once you start creating these categories, there starts to become, and it's really almost inevitable, there starts to become this sense of, um, I've, I've, I've tamed this. Sort of like scientists who um, go into a new part of the, uh, let's say, when they first started discovering um, certain species. Um, it's, it's trying to get a sense of control over the unknown. It, it's this drive within the human spirit. Um, and we do that with God as well. And so we, we want to both understand our world and have some measure of power, um, n- not necessarily to harm it, but to sense of, of, of power and control, because otherwise it's a pretty scary world. And that's where most of us start out, is having a measure of uncertainty and wanting to get certainty. And so the reason why we're cl- kind of coming back to this idea of, let's speak about it as spirit, is to reclaim mystery, Okay. Does that make sense so far? Um, So from Azusa to today, let me read you some quotes from from, uh, different uh, historians on this. It's really, really fascinating 
Um, but this is the what was called the Azusa Street Revival, which was in Southern California um, and began in 1906 and uh, lasted till 1915. Um, and um, so this uh, was a historical revival meeting that took place in, in Los Angeles. It was led by a man named William Seymour. William Seymour was an African-American preacher. It began with a meeting on April 9th, 1906, and continued until roughly 1915. The revival was characterized by spiritual experiences accompanied with testimonies of physical healing and miracles, worship services, and speaking in tongues. The participants were criticized by some secular media and Christian theologians for behaviors considered to be outrageous and unorthodox, especially at the time. Today, the revival is considered by historians to be the primary catalyst for the spread of Pentecostalism in the 20th century, which is <clears throat> and has been the fastest moving, growing religious movement in the world um, is Pentecostalism. It is not even, there's no other second to it. It's, it's just the most, the fastest rapidly moving across um, different uh, continents in this world. So, um, and it's, it's really been something that a lot of people initially could dismiss as being just, oh, they're just Pentecostals, they're weird. You know, mainline denominations, oh, yeah, yeah, we just dismiss them as just strange. Well, you can't when there are literally hundreds of millions of them throughout the world. <laughs> and, and their denominations are growing so rapidly that it is eclipsing um, the growth of any other movement out there. You have to start to say, well, maybe I got to look at it at least, you know. Take a glimpse, which is what has been happening for the last, uh, you know, mostly 30, 40, 50 years. But um, an observer. So here's this is funny. Here's an observer from one of the services who wrote this back then in the early 1900s. No instruments of music are used. None are needed. No choir. The angels have been heard by some in the spirit. No collections are taken. No bills have been posted to advertise the meetings. No church organization is back of it. <laughs> All who are in touch with God realize as soon as they enter the meetings that the Holy Ghost is the leader. Now, the reason why they use ghost, for those of you who are like unfamiliar with that term, is it's from the King James Version, which was the only version they had then. Or one of the only ones. Um, <clears throat> all right, so the LA Times was not so kind in its description. <laughs> meetings are held in tumble-down shack, in a tumble-down shack on the Zuzu Street. The devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites. They preach wildest theories and work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their peculiar zeal. <laughs> Colored people and sprinkling of whites compose the congregation. The night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers who spend hours swaying back and forth in nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. <laughs> they claim to have the gift of tongues and to be able to understand the babble. So here's another uh, quote. Um, people from, from, the, from a historian, people from diverse backgrounds came together to worship. Men, women, children, black, white, Asian, Native American, immigrants, rich, poor, illiterate, and educated. People of all ages flocked to Los Angeles with both skepticism and a desire to participate. The intermingling of races and the group's encouragement of women 
in leadership was remarkable. As 1906 was the height of Jim Crow era of racial segregation and 14 years prior to women receiving suffrage in the United States. William Seymour was known to say women should be in leadership. This is way before you. We, don't, we have no concept of how incredibly outside the box this was in terms of its thinking. So outside the box that this is, this is the reason why they were um, reviled by theologians and scholars and everybody, society in general. Just like, this is, this is sick. This is wrong. Um, this should not be happening. And they had scripture to back it. Lots of scripture, because none of these people, William Seymour, was not educated in the traditional sense of education. He was not a theologian. He was not schooled in, in re, being able to read Hebrew and Greek. He would none of those things. But they had something that no one else had. They had people coming out by the thousands because they were like, something is going on and my life is being changed. Um, <clears throat> another local reporter in 1906, September of 1906, described the happenings with the following words. Disgraceful intermingling of races. <laughs> they cry and make howling noises all night into the night, all day and into the night. They run, jump, shake all over, shout to the top of their voice, spin around in circles, fall out on the sawdust blanketed floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling over. <laughs> Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged, or under a spell. They claim to be filled with the spirit. They have a one-eyed... Uh, William Seymour was, um, uh, was blind in one eye. So um, they have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. And literally, that's what he did. He would, he would uh, hold, hold meetings, and they were basically called prayer meetings. And what he would do is he would put his head between um, what was a makeshift pulpit, which is just two milk crates. And he's put his head in between there and not say anything and just, just be praying. And then all of a sudden, he'd start saying something, and that was the way he did it. So this is, imagine the observation of people then. Like, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, if you, have you ever been to these old churches with their, uh, you know, with their pulpits? They're ornate. They're high off the ground. I mean, it's so high and so removed from everybody else. And here's this man named William Seymour who is in a, who's in a building with a ceiling that was only eight feet high. That's the reason why he, he couldn't be on a stage. And all he had was a couple milk crates and, and would stick his head in between <laughs> and pray much of the time. And he was one-eyed. And he didn't have much of an education, but stuff was happening that was undeniable. And the lives of, of people were being changed and people were lit on fire and they were of all demographics, the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the black, white, Asian, Native American, Chinese, every ethnicity, every culture. Um, all right, so uh, what else? Christians from many traditions were critical, saying the movement was hyper-emotional, misuse of scripture, lost focus on Christ by overemphasizing the Holy Spirit. Within a short time, ministers were, were warning their congregations to stay away from the Azusa Street mission. 
Some called the police and tried to get the building shut down. Now imagine this, before 1955, the religious mainstream did not embrace Pentecostal doctrines. If a church member or clergyman openly expressed such views, they would either voluntarily or involuntarily separate from their existing denomination. However, by the 1960s, many of the characteristic teachings were, were gaining acceptance among Christians within mainline Protestant denominations. Charismatic movement represented a reversal of this pattern as those influenced by Pentecostal spirituality chose to remain in their original denominations. Popularization and broader acceptance of the charismatic teachings and ideas were linked to healing revivals that occurred from 1946 to 1958. So this is what they call the second wave. If you ever hear first, second, third wave, many of you haven't, but this is when, when, when speaking about the, the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Holy Spirit in the last, in the 20th century, um, there's what's called um, the, the first, second, and third wave. So these were like movements of, of, of the Holy Spirit. The first wave was the Azusa Street Revival. The second wave is from 1946 to 1958. How many have heard of Oral Roberts? Okay, so that's kind of when he was just starting out and this is, he was part of that, that, that second wave. A um, lot of um, faith um, preachers, who started then, so even a little bit later, people like John Hagee and others who, not John Hagee, um, who's Hagen, uh, he started out uh, roughly around that time. And all these people were influenced. So the whole faith movement was influenced by, the, by, by Pentecostals, but weren't just sort of like part of the Pentecostal denomination called the Assemblies of God or the Church of God in Christ. So eventually, unfortunately, as I said last week, is even though this movement was started by an African-American preacher and it was so racially mixed, the congregations and the services and all that, eventually the, the, it's, it went back to its way of doing things, right? And um, the old wineskins and they separated and that's where the Church of God in Christ began, which is a predominantly a black uh, denomination and then the Assemblies of God. Um, and then from there, Others have branched off since then. Um, so those were the denominations. And then during the uh, 1940s and 50s, that's when you started having other denominations, other movements starting that weren't directly associated. That was awfully loud. What is that? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you just like ringing a bell of like your time's up or something. And it's just like, okay, I'll just, I'll just leave uh, <laughs> next. Yeah. Um, so you, you can set a timer if you'd like, like maybe 11, 15. Um, so, uh, the, um, so that was the second wave was during that time, the 40s, 50s. The third wave is when um, it was characterized by movements like the vineyard. So that was the charismatic movement that initially was drawing people from all different denominations who were coming in and were experiencing these, these incredible experiences of the Holy Spirit. But it was a different feel altogether. And this is, what was, this is why Pen early Pentecostals, or not early Pentecostals, but people who had experienced early Pentecostalism and who were older by this age, by this time, because I remember them. I grew up in a Pentecostal church and many of the leaders were 70s and 80s and they could go all the way back to the Azusa Street Revival and they would talk about it. And so they would listen and hear about the vineyard and go, no, 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 that's not from God. Yeah. Why? Well, because originally they were outside the box. 
But eventually, what happens? You become inside the box. And then you start to see other movements that are outside the boxes. No, you can't be from God. So, the, so it just keeps repeating itself, right? So the vineyard shows up, and they're the third wave. Instead of dressing up to go to church, they're dressing down. Instead of uh, having people who are of mixed ethnicities and races, what they're, what they're doing is they're reaching people who are hippies and who are drug addicts and who are free love and, and all this stuff, the 60s movement. And they're reaching these people, these people who were completely unchurched. And they were coming and having these spiritual experiences. And they're like, this is great. You mean we don't have to belong to a church? We don't have to go to one of those other churches to fit. Like we can hang out here. And soon enough, that became its own movement and eventually became its own denomination, which is what we're part of, the vineyard denomination. Um, so uh, that's what makes up the uh, what's called the third wave. And so... Um, and, and, the, and the contribution has been massive because the vineyard uh, style of music, that was a big thing. It, 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 the vineyard started singing songs not just about God, but to God. And in doing so, it created not only a different way of thinking or singing, um, but it also created its own sort of style and genre that eventually started getting caught on by other movements. And now even churches that are non-charismatic are singing vineyard songs and are singing songs from uh, hill songs. Uh, and, and it's just now it's like everybody does it, right? It's like there's no, uh, no, we just sing hymns here. But at some point, it was that way. It was either we sing hymns from our tradition or no, we sing hymns from our tradition. And that was kind of the way it went. And um, then there was this breakout, this movement. And uh, the second wave started having new songs that were being written. The third wave really took off with that and created its own genre of music that is being sung all over the world. All right, so um, let's talk about characteristics of spirit, spirit movements. And what I want to do is, um, first of all, uh, talk about, let's read this um, together. And let's do this as a way to sort of um, kind of engage this in a moment, maybe do this as an exercise. So would you, would you stand with me and uh, let's read out loud. Let's take something from, from uh, the traditions that have long been in the church, which is reading a passage out loud together, but let's do it without uh, being, well, we, we don't have this as a practice, so this won't feel like ritual to you. So let's engage this reading and uh, with our hearts, our heads, and uh, as much as we can with our bodies involved as well. So this is Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Okay, you may be seated. This became the passage. It's a short passage. You might have expected, as I usually do, to have longer ones. But Acts 1-4 is the one on which the whole Pentecostal movement, Acts 1-8 and Acts 2-4, is the one on which the Pentecostal movement um, uh, really relied on, is those two texts. William Seymour, when he was waiting and praying for this experience of the Holy Spirit, started fasting, started a 10-day fast. The third day into it, he was praying and praying and praying and then began speaking in other tongues. 
Now, let me just make a, a note of it. First of all, let me just say that the reason why they leaned on the scripture was because of the idea of waiting. When Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, they actually said, okay, let's wait. Let's actually do this. Let's actually wait. Not in Jerusalem. Let's wait in LA and see what happens. So they waited and they prayed and then this thing happened. Let me say something about tongues because we have a lot of thinkers in here, which I, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> um, Tongues, uh, it, it, there's a lot of stories. William Seymour and others talk about stories of, of actually speaking in other languages where they could actually speak to somebody of a different, uh, you know, uh, ethnicity, culture, um, you know, in, in who didn't speak English and they could speak to them this way. There are stories of that happening. Um, this is not what most of what we experience in Pentecostal is in Pentecostalism is not the speaking of another language. So that does happen, maybe. I mean, it seems like based on stories I've heard and uh, the one I shared with you last week where my own wife was a witness to this thing actually happening, it's kind of hard to deny it when you watch it yourself, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and you're there and you know the people that are doing this. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of miraculous. So, um, but that's not the common. That's not the ordinary. And so a lot of people have resisted, said, well, what are you speaking? If you're not speaking in tongues, then it isn't what's happening in the Bible, and therefore it shouldn't be happening today, right? So that's the argument that a lot of people made. What we're learning, though, is that uh, according to, and again, I, I recommend uh, Andrew Newberg, who's the um, neuroscientist I spoke to you about last week, who's very well respected. His field of, of interest that he really popularized was neurotheology, in which he studies brains that are of people while they're speaking in tongues or while they're having deep meditation, Buddhists who are practicing their, um, their, their style of meditation and others. And then what he does is he analyzes it to see what's happening to the brain during that time. Um, and by the way, um, we'll see if it actually follows through, but I reached out to him to see if he would be willing to do an interview with me. And he said yes. So uh, stay tuned. We'll see if that actually comes through. But um, I'm excited about that because I really want to talk with him about what he's trying to do. And that is to be sort of bridge the, the, the gap between what oftentimes people who are more scientific in their thinking and resist, you know, sort of religious thinking and then religion that tends to resist scientific thinking. Um, my belief is that God created science. God created all of this. And so God works through it, right? So it's a simplistic approach, but it's a start. And um, I think the way the, the brain works should have something going on while you're speaking in tongues, right? So, um, but it appears that the whole, the whole brain lights up and not just the language center. So, um, and many linguistics have studied the tongues. People speak and have said they're not languages, any known languages that we have today. They don't even follow the characteristic pattern of languages. Um, and that's fine because the point is not so much that we're speaking in languages that other people can understand. Um, today, we have all kinds of tools that, can, that we can use to get past those roadblocks. But really what happens when people are speaking in tongues is something else is going on. And according to Andrew Newberg and many others who have researched people, studied people who do lots of prayer, meditation, um, speaking in tongues, is that it, it causes the, 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 a lot of good 
um, effects in the physical body. Like the, the, the blood pressure goes down, heart rate slows down. It produces um, um, a better atmosphere or a better disposition. So people who do this generally tend to be more upbeat, happier people, people who are more positive, also people who have deep insight into life and who change, who have actual transformational change take place in their lives. So this is what's being researched and studied by different um, neuroscientists and by lots of others uh, who have been looking at this. And, and, and anecdotally, I can tell you that I know this to be true from my own experience of watching what happens when people engage in activity that we call Holy Spirit activity. My own life has changed because of that. I've had numerous Holy Spirit experiences that have um, definitely transform me. Like I, I would walk out of a meeting and um, I could say that, I don't know if it transformed me in that moment, but it changed me dispositionally. And over time, a number of those produce really big changes. And, uh, and so uh, this is what we're hoping happens here in our community called Vine 39. So we're gonna, what we're going to do is we want to bring in all of it. Like, let's bring in um, science. Let's bring in all this stuff. But let's move forward in faith. The problem with a lot of this, and this is what I want to talk about, is sort of the characteristics of spirit movements, is that characteristics of spirit movements have a forward lean to them, not a, not a stand back and uh, fold the arms and, and, and let's see what happens sort of thing. It's, it's a forward lean. So when you think about all the movements that have happened, Right? Jesus telling the disciples, wait in prayer was not a, well, we're going to wait and see what happens. See if anything moves me or changes me. You know? It wasn't that, that sort of thing. Nor was it a, please God, come down from heaven. You know, um, it's not one of those either. It's, there, there is no formula. We try formulas and they never work. In fact, I can tell you that most spiritual experiences that have happened to me have never been when I wanted them to happen. <laughs> Dang it. You know, it's like when I pray and ask God for a, an experience, it doesn't happen. Right? Are you with me? Some of you have had these spiritual experiences. You, I mean, this is what's frustrating. I wish I could make God do what I'd like God to do, but God refuses to do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. And God has his, apparently his, his own timeline. But... Um, in any event, I've just recognized that that's how it sort of see, it, it happens. But the forward lean means that you're at least starting to move in a particular direction. Now let me address the theological piece of it, because this is the formula piece, right? So, you know, the, the disciples are like, so, 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 so we have theology, right? Like, you're supposed to come back and like raise up Israel, overthrow Rome, and we're in charge again. So when are you going to do that? That's their question to Jesus. Jesus' response is not for you to know the times or dates, right? When I'm going to do anything. But, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to stay in Jerusalem because then the Holy Spirit's going to come down on you. Oh, okay. So what do they do? Forward lean. Let's go. And they wait in Jerusalem and they're praying and they're waiting and they're praying and they're engaging and the Holy Spirit comes. So fast forward Zusa Street. You know where that came from? A holiness movement that predated it. The holiness movement had all kinds of real strict rules and beliefs about things. 
So when William Seymour says, so here's what I've discovered, who was part of this holiness movement, he says, here's what I've discovered. There's this thing called the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they all knew about the Holy Spirit, but like this thing called the infilling and the baptism that then you speak in tongues. And they were like, mm -mm, no. And you know what they did? They kicked him out. But you know what the, the leader of the association who kicked him out said to him later? Keep seeking the Holy Spirit. And if it happens to you, come talk to me about it. Uh -huh. right? So Seymour gets kicked out, out of this movement, because they had a theology about things. And this is the way it's supposed to work. You know? and, and, and Seymour says, well, I'm, I'm going to pursue this thing. It hasn't happened to me yet. So he starts preaching about it way before it happens to him. He's like, when is it going to happen to me? And then three days into, as I said, a fast, he receives and starts speaking in tongues, and then things start taking off. And at first, it was just a group of people meeting in a house, and then they moved to another house, and this house on, on Azusa Street, where they were having this experience, uh, began to um, have a lot of people coming, and eventually 1,500 people were showing up. And it was so packed that at one point, the porch, while they were standing, so those of you who are like into, you know, making sure safety and all that. They're on a porch, the porch collapsed. <laughs> and, but the thing is that they said no one got hurt. No one ever got hurt at these things. Like even people who fell under the spirit never got hurt. It was like, I don't know why, but nothing's bad's happening. So then they eventually moved to another place um, but, uh, and, and, and continued to grow. All right, so, so the, the, the Holy Spirit's, so the forward leading uh, is what is, is uh, part of this whole experience, is that we have to move forward. Regardless of our theological beliefs, we're going to get them wrong. They're just places for us to start. So grace to all of us. We're never going to get it right 100% of the time. Pentecostals didn't get it right. Uh, Charismatics didn't get it right. None of us ever get it right. But we have to start somewhere. And so God gives us grace. This is where you start. It's okay. Just the point of it is, can you lean forward instead of pulling back and saying, eh, all, of it is, all of it is just silliness. And all of it is, is just a metaphor. All of it is just, a, no, it's not. There is something that we can't quite define, but it's real. And when it happens to us, we call that the Holy Spirit. We call that God. We follow the tradition that's been in scripture and that has been through the church for a long time, that we know there's something greater than us. And when we start to move toward it, it seems to respond to us, not on our timeline, but it does respond to us. And time and time again, we've seen it happen. And I'm seeing it happen today in some amazing ways uh, through some of my clients that not a, don't even have a tradition of faith that are starting to experience the spirit of God in their lives. Because when you lean forward, for whatever reason, there's something that leans back to you. But it requires that. It requires faith and it requires a forward lean. All right, moving. The second one is it's moving, always moving. It's not a static thing. And this is what's difficult about it. That's why it's called a movement. It's because as you heard the quote, they, there was no denomination backing this thing. Like they're trying to explain what was going, what, what are you guys? We don't know. We're just a bunch of people meeting and something's happening. Were you part of a denomination? No. What's your doctrines? No, we're, we're all figuring that out. We have some. But we just got kicked out of one group, so we're trying to develop a new... Like, it's just weird. Like, who are you guys and what's happening? But your movement, something's happened. A movement is characterized by 
by, by it's being something, there's no advertising. There's no need to promote this thing. There's no need to cajole people into coming because there's something there that is meeting them and meeting their needs at a deep level and changing them. And we know when we've run into that, there's something so compelling about that you can't even miss a single Sunday or a single meeting that's happening, right? It's amazing, absolutely amazing what's happening. So it's a movement. And it continues to, to, to uh, cross different uh, boundaries. And that's the third point is that I think um, we have to get used to it. It's whatever this thing is, it's chaotic. It's chaotic. But once you're in it, it's a strange sort of experience with chaos because it doesn't feel like chaos when you're in it. When you're on the outside looking at it, it's chaotic. But when you're on the inside, you're saying this, for whatever reason, feels really deeply right. I can't quite put my finger on it. I can't even describe what's happening. The fact that there's uh, intermingling of races in 1906 during the time of the start of the revival. And they're like, uh, this is like wrong on every level. We've always known this to be wrong. But how come we're comfortable right now? How come I see you as my brother and my sister and I don't see you as anything other than that? Like, I love you and you love me and we're experiencing this incredible moment together. Like, I, 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 it blew their minds, right? So whatever this is, it's gonna create some chaos and it's going to move things in ways that we didn't expect to move, but it also moves against social boundaries and creates a new norm. But eventually women's suffrage would come. Eventually um, there'd be, uh, you know, there'd be other uh, freedoms that would come. You know, eventually Martin Luther King Jr. would rise up and, uh, and really make a push for this uh, freedom for all people. And, you know, here we are today and we're still pushing for more of that. But this is one of the things that's a that's definite mark of a move of the spirit is that there is a changing in the way we see social structures and who's in and who's out. But since we are where we are today, we can't know what that new thing is going to look like in our day. Whatever God is going to do right now, as we move into whatever's going to take place in the future, it may happen tomorrow, it may happen next week, it may happen 10 years from now, it may, be, may, happen not, may not even happen in our lifetime. But if there's another movement like this, significant movement like this, uh, it's going to be characterized this way. And in our preparation for it, it's, we, we have to do our work, but none of us know what that's going to look like. And this is why I call this the old to new wineskins is because in the passage that we'd read last week from Matthew on Jesus speaking about the new wine being put into the new wineskins and the old being still in the old wineskins and both having purpose and value. There's not a getting rid of one. And I have to say that much of the time, um, I am on the, uh, on the side to get rid of things. I'm on the side to just sort of like, let's just destroy the old and start with the new, right? That's my predisposition. It's not a good one. I'm just saying that's my predisposition. Other people, you're more like, uh-uh-uh-uh, suspect the new. Always suspect the new. The old is tried and true. It's good, okay? And Jesus' answer to us is both have to exist for a while together. 
because we don't know. We're not smart enough to know these things. They're beyond us. Whatever God is doing, whatever new shape is coming to the church as it is today, it's going to look different than anyone can conceive at this moment. And so we have to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit and to say it appears that there's new wine. But until I know what that new wine is, I can't even create a new wineskin for it. I just have to sort of go with it at this point and be ready for it. And so uh, as I wrap up, this is my challenge for us this morning. Um, and we're going to get into some really cool stuff. Next, we're going to talk about the, um, the empowerment of the Spirit. So we're going to get talk about gifts of the Spirit and all this other stuff, and we're going to practice some of that. Okay? It's going to be fun. Woo! Can't wait. It's going to be a good time. <clears throat> but today, what I'd like us to do is to consider that whatever it is that God is doing today, the seeds have already started for whatever movement is going to take place. The seeds have already been planted and they're already beginning. As for us to be open, to keep moving forward, to keep leaning forward toward spirit, uh, for us to be open that it's a movement and none of us will have it right but we still hold on to our beliefs while still saying, we got I'm sure there's going to be some changes to my beliefs that will come. So the humility of I'm open to being wrong and I'm open to however God wants to do this. And it's going to offend me at some point. It should. It offended people back then. How do we think it's going to not offend us today? Right? So it's going to do that and it's going to be chaotic. But if I enter in, it's going to be an, a beautiful order to this weird chaos going on around me. And that's the way God creates new order, is from chaos, Genesis chapter 1. Chaos is always part of the plan. I wish it wasn't, but it is. And so we stay open to those three things as we move forward. So let's stand for worship and uh, let's start to sing. And be open in this moment. So let's, let's do that right now as, as Jim um, starts leading in worship, is for you to sort of stand and posture yourself in a way that is open um, to spirit. There's no expectation here that you're going to perform a particular way. So release expectation on yourself. It does not matter however and whatever. It's going to be your experience with God and with the spirit of God. So open yourself up this morning. All right, so last week, my friends and I had a tremendous tragic loss. And um, in the midst of this tragedy, I had moments of like complete defiant unbelief. The enemy told me so many lies that I was completely paralyzed with fear. And um, when I finally surrendered, the Holy Spirit just like came into my life and lifted me up and he just carried me through things that I can't even believe that, that we got through. And... Um, I've been carrying this quote around with me for months and it kept coming to my mind over and over and over again. And it's, your oak tree is already in your acorn. No lie can change that. Growth may be hindered for a season, but ultimately it's your truth and your tree. And then I was driving my car the other day and I parked the car and I got out of the car and I'm parked into this big oak tree and there are acorns all around me. So I'm like, Laurie, quick, pick them up. We need them for everybody in church. So we're like scrambling on the ground looking for these acorns. And um, so this little acorn has been with me ever since. And it's a constant reminder that I am my truth 
and I am my tree. And with Jesus, no lie can change that. So I brought acorns for everybody today, and they're over on the table, back by the life group sign-up sheet, so feel free to take one. And my blessing for you this week is that you surrender to the Holy Spirit. May you confront the enemy with your truth. And when you feel your acorn in your pocket, may you be reminded that your oak tree is already in your acorn. It's your truth and your tree. Grace to all of us. Have a spirit-filled week, my friends. Amen.